Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. Hey gang, this is just a quick reminder that I have a massive fall tour coming up starting in September. And so if you want to head to my website, amy-bruni.net and click on the appearances page, you can see if I will be anywhere near you. A lot of these do have meet and greet options too. So if you want to get a photo with me or ask me a question personally, this is your chance. I can see just looking at my schedule, I'm going to be in California, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, Texas, Louisiana, and more. So please check it out and hopefully we will get to meet in person and talk about spooky things, my favorite. When I was a young child, maybe four or five, my parents made me a toy box. By made, I mean they found an old trunk, probably at a garage sale knowing them, and they turned it into my own toy chest. With a little love, it was perfect. They painted it white and used Mod Podge to add A-M-Y on the top in playful letters. For good measure, they also added Raggedy Ann and Andy. I loved that chest. I loved it so much that I would even sometimes sit inside of it and pretend it was a boat or a car. One day, not long after I received the chest, so I must have still been about five years old, I was pretending I was sailing away in a boat. Sitting in the chest, I let my imagination run wild, and at one point, the lid came crashing down toward me. In an effort to avoid hitting my head, I ducked, and suddenly I found myself in darkness. The lid had crashed down and latched from the outside. Honestly, I don't remember a lot after that. I don't know how long I was in there, but I remember snippets of me screaming for my mom and her definitely not hearing me from the other end of the house. And I remember the feeling of not being able to breathe and being very hot and sweaty until finally the lid opened and my frantic mother was asking if I was okay. I was, I thought. Ever since that fateful moment, I have had terrible claustrophobia. I blame it on that experience, though I guess I'll never know for sure. But when I have to investigate small spaces, I am visibly anxious and have to take frequent breaks. Being underground is especially worrisome, so tunnels and caves are also a major problem for me. I can't shake the feeling that at any moment, I could be buried alive. So imagine my trepidation when we agreed to investigate a mine, a big one. Come with me as we venture to New Jersey and explore the very haunted Sterling Hill Mines. I hope you'll hold my hand if I need it. I'm Amy Bruni, and this is Haunted Road. Beneath the ground in Ogdensburg, New Jersey, caves glow brightly with subterranean treasures. The 35 miles of tunnels, which were once the Sterling Hill Mine, are among the richest in the world with fluorescent minerals. Vibrant red calcite, 
deep yellow esperite, lush violet hardistonite, and vivid green willemite, the phosphorescent glow of which emanates even after there is no energy source attached to it. Today, people tour the tunnels to learn the history of mining in New Jersey, which dates back to the 1600s, and to see the natural wonders of the light show under the ground. They also go to the Sterling Hill mine looking for ghosts, spirits who remain behind after terrible accidents that happened when the mine was still in operation. I know firsthand I was one of those people. And I found ghosts who still had some of the most intense emotional energy I've ever experienced. It turns out guilt and grief can last, even in death. The Sterling Hill Mine, now known as the Sterling Hill Mine Tour and Museum of Fluorescence, is a former iron and zinc mine in northern New Jersey, near the New York border. Legend has it that early Dutch settlers to the area started mining on the site in the 1630s in search of highly prized copper and iron deposits. However, those claims are unsubstantiated, according to A History of Sterling Hill Mine by Daniel Russell. As he wrote, the earliest documentary evidence of mining activities on the Sterling Hill site date from 1730, when the property, then known as the Copper Mine Tract, was divided to the heirs of Anthony Rutgers by the proprietors of New Jersey. In 1769, William Alexander, who called himself Lord Sterling, though he had no noble title, acquired the property. He mined iron from the site, sending many tons of ore to his furnace in Hibernia, New Jersey, and tons of what he incorrectly thought was copper to England. While Lord Sterling ultimately failed to effectively mine Sterling Hill, he was partly right. There were rich deposits of minerals in that ground, over 370 different minerals actually, and more than 20 minerals found nowhere else in the world. He just couldn't get to them. The Franklinite in the ground, which bore iron inside, was resistant to smelting by the technology of his time. Lord Sterling drank himself to death during the American Revolution, and the mines went to the Ogden family, owners of the profitable Ogden mine and nearby iron furnace. The Ogdens didn't extract iron from Sterling Hill, but did mine zinc there that was used for brass during the War of 1812. The Ogden family ran three separate mines in the area for most of the 19th and early 20th centuries until the New Jersey Zinc Company took over operations. The company began producing ore in 1912 and had a superstar consultant, Thomas Alva Edison, inventor of the telegraph, the phonograph, and the first long-lasting light bulb, among about a million other things. Edison, according to Daniel Russell, had acquired an iron mine several miles from the Sterling Hill mines and had developed several innovative techniques and processes for beneficiating the ores and smelting metal. He maintained an active correspondence with the officers and management of the New Jersey Zinc Company, offering detailed advice on process technology as well as designing equipment for the company. The work was difficult and dangerous, but the New Jersey Zinc Company substantially improved the quality of life for miners in Ogdensburg. It built a hospital, club rooms for the miners and their families, bowling alleys, tennis courts, swimming pools, and even a summer camp for the miners' children. The mining company even provided company-subsidized housing for employees, consisting of four-room bungalows for laborers at $8 per month in 1922 and comfortable houses for staff at $17 a month. Those costs in today's money would be about $141 for the bungalows and $300 for the comfortable houses. During their shifts, miners would descend as far as 2,675 feet below the surface to excavate 35 miles of tunnels. 
Before and after their shifts, miners would stop at Miner's Change House. Each miner had a locker. There were 300 of them, which had a chain attached to it. The chain was attached to a pulley in the ceiling and had a basket at one end. Miners would take off their wet, muddy clothes, put them in their basket, and hoist the basket up to the ceiling. Overnight, the drier air would dry the clothes so they were ready for work the next day. The mining was so successful and the minerals so in demand that during World War II, the mine never closed. There were three shifts around the clock mining zinc for the brass to make bullet and artillery shells. According to a history of the mine by Sussex County, New Jersey, the site was considered of vital strategic interest and was protected by armed soldiers. Rock and Gem magazine reports that over the 136-year period the Sterling Mine was in operation, it mined 11 million tons of ore, 20% of which was zinc. In fact, the deposits found in the ground in Ogdensburg, which are about 103 billion years old, are exceptionally rich in zinc. The history of the mine on the museum's website claims that no similar deposits of richness and purity have been found anywhere else on Earth. Zinc might not sound like an essential mineral, but you'd be surprised at how many uses it has. Essential car parts like carburetors, door handles, and fuel pumps are all made from zinc. It's integral to making galvanized metals, ceramics, batteries, tires, sunblock, even pennies. And of course, we need to make sure we eat enough of it to keep our immune systems strong. The fourth oldest mine in the country, Sterling Mine, was the last working underground mine in New Jersey when it closed in 1986 and closed only because of a tax dispute with Ogdensburg. The town foreclosed on the property in 1989 and it was bought at auction for $750,000 to Richard and Robert Houck, who opened the Sterling Hill Mine Museum in 1990. The next year, it was added to the National Register of Historic Places and eventually became a nonprofit educational foundation managed by a board of trustees. Today, the Miner's Change House is the Zobel Hall Museum. That building houses everything from inventions by Thomas Edison to dinosaur fossils to actual meteorites from space. It also has a stunning multi-million dollar display of minerals from as far away as Russia and China and a huge display of the periodic table of elements. For each element, there's an example of the ore it's extracted from and an example of an object made using that element. The mine's old mill building, which dates back to 1916, is now the Warren Museum of Fluorescence, which displays more than 700 different fluorescent minerals and objects. The museum claims to have the largest collection of fluorescent minerals in the world. Today, both the main shaft, which goes down 2,065 feet, and the lower shaft, which goes down 2,675 feet, are totally flooded. In fact, everything lower than the very top level of the mine, less than 100 feet below ground, are totally submerged. The temperature is a constant 56 degrees inside. Visitors to the museum can explore not just the collection of artifacts, but the mines themselves on guided walks through the parts of the mine that are still accessible. The subterranean walk goes through a new 240-foot section called the Rainbow Tunnel, which they blasted in 1990 using 49 blasts and at a cost of $2 a foot. There, shortwave UV lights are turned on to illuminate the entire tunnel and showcase various mineral samples glowing with fluorescence. Fans of the movie Zoolander might find Sterling Mine familiar. The mining scenes in the movie were filmed there. That's when he said, I've got the black lung pop. Paranormal researchers have claimed that there was a terrible accident resulting in the deaths of 77 people inside the mine nearly a century ago. 
But when I was researching the mine for the episode of Kindred Spirits we filmed there, I did not find any historical record of that accident. What I did find, however, was a history of smaller accidents that have left impressions in the space for centuries. In particular, cave-ins injured miners. On November 14, 1930, a cave-in at the mine injured a mining expert who was rescued by workers but died on the way to the hospital. A similar accident happened on Monday, February 9, 1942. John Under was killed by what the Courier News described as a fall of rock and dirt. But in 1958, a very serious accident happened that had nothing to do with the cave-in. Workers in the mine were building a new shaft, and some miners were tasked with salvaging and dismantling the old shaft. For many months, Doug Francisco wrote in the Sterling Hill newsletter, a handful of men were tasked with shutting her down. One night, a crew of five men were sending scrap metal to the surface through an elevator cage. Three men prepped the metal on the mine floor, and two rode the cage up and loaded the scrap. As Francisco wrote, level by level, the cage rattled downward at a nice steady pace. At 1680 level, the neglected maintenance took its toll. The cable clamps let loose, and the cage with its human cargo free fell hundreds of feet, gathering speed until it crashed to the floor of the shaft bottom. The men were pitched off. One died instantly, and the other, Ralph Romans, was hurled into a puddle of water. The three men on the bottom rushed forward, and one of them rolled Ralph onto his back, keeping his head out of the water and cradled him, hoping to allow him to breathe. Ralph Romans died in the man's arms. Years later, Francisco described a former miner turned chaplain named Bob Romans was visiting patients in Newton Hospital in the spring of around 1988 to comfort sick and dying patients. On entering one of the hospital rooms, he saw a wispy-haired, frail old man, and approaching the bed, Chaplain Bob reached out his hand and took the old man, saying, I'm Bob Romans, a chaplain here at the hospital. The old man's eyes struggled to focus, and he finally said, I knew a Romans a long time ago. He was a friend of mine many years ago, the old man said. We worked the mines together. The old man went on to say that they had worked at Sterling together. I was there the night he died, the old man said. He went on to describe the night of the accident. I was there the night he died. It was 1958. The cage cut loose and slammed down to the bottom. We heard it coming and got the hell out of the way the best we could. When it crashed, we ran forward and I found Ralph broken, bleeding, and lying face down in the water. I held his head up out of the water, hoping he would be able to breathe, but it only took a few moments to realize he was already dead. I just held him in my arms. As Francisco wrote, Bob left the hospital that night amazed that he had been given such a privilege to personally thank this man for trying to help his grandpa in his last moments on earth, and how such a holy moment could come so unexpectedly from such a tragic event so long ago. Bob later learned that the man had passed away the next morning. When Adam Barry and I investigated Sterling Mine for Kindred Spirits, we made contact with a spirit we believe was involved with that very accident, and who carried a great amount of grief and guilt about it. He didn't die in the mine, but his spirit lingered there. We believe he stayed behind to warn people about the dangers of the mine and to not let anyone go anywhere inside the tunnels that wasn't safe. Another spirit who's reported to appear often in Sterling Mine is Bicycle Pete. According to legend, he was a miner who would ride his bike to the mine daily. One day, Pete went into the mines, but never returned. The only way they noticed was that his bicycle remained parked outside well into the night, unclaimed. Supposedly, he was never seen again. 
Pete's ghost is believed to haunt the mine to this day, and also to this day, the mining museum leaves a bike parked outside the entrance in his honor. Visitors also claim to hear footsteps, voices, the sound of machinery, and whispers inside the mine. But the hauntings aren't just underground. Some people claim to have seen shadow figures in the museum buildings or faces in the windows peering out. To talk more about the hauntings, I have Jean Rogero coming up next. He is the founder of New Jersey Paranormal and has spent many nights investigating the mines. We talk about our experiences there and it's quite chilling, literally. It's cold in those mines. That's coming up after the break. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, so I am sitting here with Mr. John Ruggiero, who is the founder of New Jersey Paranormal, and you may have seen him on Kindred Spirits in the past when we investigated Liberty Hall, but we actually go way back. He has a really great event that he and his team put on every year in New Jersey, which we'll talk about at the end, but that's how we know each other, and we have a lot of mutual friends, and so he's the one that brought the idea of Sterling Hill Mine to us for Kindred Spirits because they were having some crazy activity and wanted answers. And so he's the perfect person to talk to. So welcome, John. (laughs) Hi, Amy. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Of course. The mine is a really wild place to investigate. Now, I have claustrophobia pretty badly, and I hate being underground. It is, I've talked about it on a number of occasions. And when they came to me and said, we have this mine that would like you all to investigate, I was instantly like, well, that's too bad for them. (laughs) But eventually they talked me into it and it it turned into a really interesting case. Now you guys have investigated it a number of times, right? Right. We were contacted by them a few years back about the activity there. They had multiple reports of seeing and hearing things. And we asked if we could go into the mine and see if we could see for ourselves. And we had gone in there actually three or four times over a couple of weekends. And like you said, the initial, your initial visit, when you go in there with the lights on, it's pretty intimidating with the lights on as you're walking through there in the mine. And then when they turned the lights off and we were in there in the pitch black, the very first thing I ever experienced there was hearing voices back and forth talking to each other in the echo and the water dripping. And we literally just said, quiet, quiet. And we stayed quiet for 10 minutes and listened to these people just back and forth talking to each other. It was one of the most bizarre experiences I've ever had. I mean, when you say that, I'm literally getting chills because I remember that feeling of being in the mine and 
hearing voices. And so here's the thing. The mine is not an operation. It's a museum. We had it to ourselves. There's no way for anyone to get in there. And if you sit quietly, you will hear voices. And the darkness is like, when you turn off the lights, it is the darkest of dark. And you are so aware that you are underground. And then when you hear voices at the same time, your entire body reacts like you want to run, but you can't because because you you will fall or run into a wall of some sort. Um, <laughs> but but it is I would say it is one of the eeriest experience. I mean that whole investigation was just solid. Like I never felt relaxed. I never felt at ease. I was constantly having anxiety and like mini panic attacks. And so I guess that added to it for me. But the activity itself is just wild. So we were interviewing someone who worked in the mine for a number of years. I can't recall his name, but he was he was fabulous. And he had so much information. And in the middle of the interview, I was like, can you just come with us? Because we were kind of describing the sounds we were hearing. And we just asked him, you know, can you come with us and explain some of these? Because you've been in there so long and, and work in there still. So we brought this man back to the mine that night and he actually wore his full like mining gear for us. So we thought that would be neat to kind of maybe use that as kind of a trigger, like use him as a human trigger object. And he was teaching us like what he did and everything. And so then we said, well, let's just sit for a minute and let's be quiet. And so we sat and we hear this very loud rumbling coming from below us. And then we hear it kind of from above us too. And I just looked at him I'm like, that's the sound. Like, what are, what's making that sound? And he looked at us and he said, well, that sounds like a mining cart, but that's impossible. And I said, well, thank you. We're not, <laughs> we've not lost it here. Because we thought the same, like it sounded like something mechanical. And he just said, you know, I've worked in here so long. He said, but I'm always working. He said, I've never just sat and listened. And he was baffled. And this is a man who was hugely skeptical of the idea of ghosts. And he didn't say it was a ghost, but he definitely was like, I have no explanation for what we're experiencing right now. And he heard the voices too, these like loud, gruff male voices talking down at the end of the mine. And he had zero explanation, but it did make sense when he said, no one's down here listening who works here. They're all just working. You know, no one just wants to just sit in the mine and meditate. They want to get in and out, you know? Right. So that was really cool for us. You had mentioned a good point during the episode about, you know, the people that run the mine now are, are men of science. They have degrees in engineering and, uh, and other degrees. And these aren't people that do what we do. So they're not big believers of the paranormal. And when I first went in there and they were describing seeing shadow figures, having things rush them, hearing growling, getting pushed, it was just so believable because again these aren't the typical people that that we deal with and then when we went in there ourselves and we were rushed at least two or three times something just comes at you and you feel the rush of wind or air and you sometimes in your ear you'll hear ah or you'll hear a growl and it is again a bizarre experience to know that again you're in the dark you can't see who's ever there but they're definitely around. And that noise you're describing, we heard that, but we also heard what sounded like residual dynamite. They have a display there. I don't know if they showed you that, where they oh, yeah. demo the, the mine, how they, they use the dynamite, and yes. it has lights, yeah. and you hear 
when you do that, you want to talk about a trigger object. If you do that and then wait an hour or two or three, you will hear the residual in the mind in different areas. Again, bizarre how that works. It is very strange activity. And I know too, there are shadows seen in there a lot. And we definitely saw one at one point. What's your experience been with like shadow figures or apparitions in the mines? I've got a good one for you. The office space where I know you were in with Chip. In the last year, since you've been there actually, a lot of the miners that work there, they'll come back if they're from California or different parts of the country. And they let them actually stay in the office. They have like little bedrooms set up with refrigerators and beds. And they've been doing that for years. But lately, over the last year or so, they won't stay on that bottom floor of that office anymore because they've seen a shadow figure above them when Mm. they're sleeping and they're hearing banging on the pipes and things like that. Now they actually have a trailer outside the office because these guys, and you know the guys I'm talking about, these are you know guys that are used to manual labor and tough guys. They will not stay in that building. So I'm in there and we had just finished an event and I'm grabbing all of my things and I kid you not, a shadow figure went right in front of me, paused and then went down the stairs and around into one of the old bedrooms. I froze because I had never seen a shadow figure do that before. And that's the office, too, where people have to work every day, right? Yep. <laughs> oh, jeez. I, I, I <laughs> this is what I mean. Yeah, I was surprised at the activity in that building. So this part is not even like part of the mine. It's kind of connected. You can kind of get to the mine. I remember not really being familiar with that part when they asked us to look there because they'd been having activity. I was like, Oh, I'm of course, any place that's not underground, I'm happy to investigate. <laughs> and so we, we get there and then I'm like, mm, this might be creepier than the mine. <laughs> it was definitely had a strange feeling. And that was when we did a really interesting spirit box session there, Estes session there. And We got this man who felt he was communicating and feeling very responsible for something. We don't know if he was affiliated with, there was a really terrible mining accident that happened there. We don't know if he's sure if he's affiliated with that, but he definitely felt some sort of remorse and also like he was being blamed. And so, I mean, I don't know, maybe he's trying to like make himself known, especially to miners, or maybe he knew them from before. Like maybe he's trying to reach out to them for some reason. Sounds like we might need to revisit. <laughs> that, that's actually a really good point. And I, I had forgotten about that from the episode because I had also done Spirit Box and EVP sessions there. And there is somebody that talks about a fire. Mm. He talks about a fire and he talks about being burned. And the last thing he remembered that I got on EVP was pain. Oh, so geez. it's kind of strange that you mentioned that because you know, most of the people that die there are cave-ins and explosions and, and horrible ways to go. So they do linger with those memories, unfortunately. Yeah, the mining industry, especially back then, I mean, just in general, mining is such a dangerous occupation. But even back then, like, they did not have OSHA standards. They did not, you know, it's funny to look at photos when you look at historical photos of these guys just covered in dirt and ash and smile, all smiles. And and they often talk about it with kind of a fondness. Like there's something that's kind of like a, a brotherhood, you know, even the miners that we met, they're kind of nostalgic for it. Like there's something about it, which 
I don't understand. I mean, a lot of us don't understand. I'm sure, you know, you think, okay, you're doing this really dangerous job, but maybe that does create kind of, like I said before, like a a brotherhood or this feeling of like, you have to kind of really get emotional about it and and begin to love it to risk that. I don't know. I'm completely and you have to it. count on the person next to you because if something happens, it's just you and that group because that went down 35 levels, that mine. So if something happened on level 24 and you're with a bunch of people and you're working and you're in it together, whatever happens is going to happen to all of you. And that was every day. I'm sure they lived with that, the notion of, hey, yeah, something could happen. It happened a year ago. It may have happened five years ago, but they know things happened in that mind. Yeah, I mean, and that's when I think about the idea of them going down so far. Because like when you see the elevator shaft, it is so far. And then one of the things we did in there, and, and we were with that gentleman again. He was demonstrating to us. Like he just picked up like there's pipes and stuff all over. He just picked up a random pipe. There was a pool of water that was basically one of the old shafts, and he threw it. And we could hear it pinging all the way down. I'm telling you, that thing went on for like a minute and a half, just getting further and further away. Ping, ping, ping. And I was just thinking of all those shafts that are down there flooded, all of the gear and stuff that's probably still there. And are there people still there? You know, like, are there people that were never recovered that are down there? Like, it's it's really eerie to think about females especially get kind of the they get attention in a different way we've we've heard a lot of females get cursed at there and they hear the growling a little more so i don't know if that's because females didn't work in the mine and maybe they did believe they were bad luck i don't know but definitely they get a different kind of interaction from what i've seen right i experienced that i tried to explain you know i'm always trying to talk to these spirits like i would want to be talked to and i just tried to explain you know hey the year is 2021 or whatever when we were there and women are now allowed in mines <laughs> you know i'm trying to be like, <laughs> i don't know if they're going to believe that though <laughs> you know and and uh you know, we're, this mine isn't in operation anymore. You don't have to worry about me being bad luck. I'm sure it doesn't help. I'm a redhead. Like, you know, just trying to... Like, <laughs> okay, you've got all the things going on there. The um, perfect storm. Yeah, but I mean, maybe that's there's something to that because I do remember hearing the voices quite often. And a lot of them sounded very angry. And actually, we heard them back where you were talking about that dynamite area. That's where I heard the voices the most often. And we even followed them back to this whole back area I didn't even know existed. And they weren't stopping. They were chattering and they were men. They didn't sound happy per se. So I wasn't sure if it was like they were talking about what they were supposed to be doing, if it's some sort of residual working environment that we're hearing, but very wild nonetheless. Like I said, very creepy feeling to be in a mine hearing ghostly voices, especially when it's the middle of the night. I think it's a mixture of both. I think there's residual and I think there's intelligent. And it's such a weird mixture. Like you said, when they're around you, we've had so many things happen in that mine where so many different people walking through experiencing different things. And they're not shy about coming up to you. That That's another thing that's kind of strange about that mine is that The odds are if you're wandering through that mine and there are people that work there will tell you as well that they'll hear the footsteps. That happens a lot where you could be in one area and you've been there. So, you know, there's water on the ground and you Mm -hmm. can hear the foot, even sneakers, but boots you can hear, especially 
and you'll be by yourself and setting things up and you hear boom, boom, the, the wet footsteps coming towards you. And you just stand there with a flashlight pointing it in a direction and seeing nothing, yet they're still coming. Yeah. And also bring a backup flashlight. Speaking of that, because I know, Fre- I think it was Freddie, he was telling us a story about how he was out there, He, you know, because he goes in and out of that mine all the time. Again, this is one of those stories that gives me the heebie-jeebies. He was there and he he started hearing footsteps. And then, so Freddie was the gentleman who we interviewed, I believe. He heard footsteps and then his flashlight went out and it couldn't, he couldn't get it back on. And he's in the pitch darkness by himself, hearing these footsteps approaching from behind. He had to make his way out of the mine without his flashlight, hold, like guiding on. Thank God he knew where, how to get around in there because he'd been in there so often. He had to touch the wall and get all the way to where he could see the doorway off in the distance. I would probably just drop dead, right? I would be like, okay, this is it. I'm good. Goodbye. And, and no one's <laughs> going to hear you if you're yelling for help in there because no. they have those gigantic metal doors and there's no other way to access it. So no. you're stuck in there until you get out of there. And so someone like, oh, no. So one of the things that I love about that place is that it's actually a huge, it's very educational. Like, obviously, we're talking about the haunts and the ghosts, but it is an amazing museum experience. And there are tons of field trips and like kids going in and out of there all the time. Like, it is not at all a place that I would deem like a dangerous type haunt. I do think that there, no, I think there are ghosts there that have a lot of questions or are needing something. And over time, as people investigate, you might find that out. But I don't think people are like the miner that we worked with said, if you're in there and you're walking around the, the sound and everything, it moves so crazy. You would not know if a ghost was talking to you. You're not going to have a paranormal experience in there really, unless you really sit still and look and listen. And so I don't want to dissuade people from going because oh, I no, think no, it is such, it's such a great place. And they have some really amazing displays. They have like a huge uranium glass collection. They have a really great like mining area where kids can do their old gold panning. My daughter, so my daughter was there for filming and she clearly was fearless during that. She literally like ran off into the mine. I had to follow her. She wanted to go in the mine and no one was in there because we were down for like lunch break or something and she wanted to go in the mine. And so I had to like put on a brave face. I think she was six or seven at the time, probably seven. And I'm like, sure, we can go in the mine. (laughs) So it's just the two of us and she's running ahead, like living it up. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm so scared. <laughs> so, but anyways, kids love it. The fluorescent minerals as well. That's another big draw that yes. people love when they turn the black lights on. And, and there's many, many pictures of those minerals. And it's just, I don't think those minerals are in a lot of other mining museums. I, I, I think they're kind of exclusive to the Sterling mine, at least in this area maybe for places that you can actually visit. And it, it, you can't do it justice. You could look at the pictures, but when you're actually in the room and they turn the black light on, it really does just, it's like a rainbow inside yeah. this mountain. <laughs> it is why, I mean, I didn't even know to expect that. You know, we had done so much kind of researching and hearing about the ghosts. And then when they showed us that, I was like, this is the most beautiful thing. Like it was, it, it is, it's a very cool place. It is very, very haunted, but it's a haunt unlike any other, and I can't wait to get back there eventually. And so at some point, we're going to have to arrange something because it is one of my favorite places I've been. Here's the thing. I investigate so many places. It's rare that a place really gives me kind of the chills. And I think it's a combination of the ghosts, but also just the location. Like, <laughs> 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 So it's always fun to find a place that actually scares me a little. <laughs> 
But it's funny you mentioned that because, like you said, when, when you walk in there and the lights are on and they take you through the general tour during the day, that mine is always 56 degrees, no matter what the temperature is outside. So there's a little chill in there all the time. But walking with the lights on, it is a little kind of intimidating to think that people were working in that and underground. But then you turn those lights off and it is kind of the other side of the coin. It's night and day. That's when you had mentioned, you know, children go there for field trips. They have been forever. That's when mm-hmm. most people know that mind. But in, in the dark, when you're trying to address the spirits that are there, that's when you have the most experiences, when you're actively trying to interact with them and mm-hmm. communicate with them. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't think there are a lot of people going in there and talking to them that way. And so they, they do seem a bit eager. So, well, tell me, what, what are you guys up to? You, know, you run what I would consider one of the largest paranormal conventions in the country, the New Jersey Para Unity Expo, which you just had recently. And it was the first year I hadn't been able to come in a while because I was on the Strange Escapes crew. So how did it go? Are you guys going to have another one next year? How do people find out about all this fun stuff you do? We did miss you guys being there. I, I told you that before for the interview. It just didn't feel the same without you and Adam. But um, yeah, we just had it two weeks ago, our biggest turnout ever, which we try to add to it every year. This is an event for charity. All the proceeds go to the Woodbridge Charity Fund. We try to keep it affordable for everyone. We try to give people the big corporate casino experience, but on a more of a grassroots level which is why we keep it affordable. Kids are only $5. We bring in great people like you guys and Destination Fear and the Ghost Hunters and Ghost Brothers. And we're thinking of October for next year, late September. Mm. But the goal is, again, to add to the number of guests that are going to be there, the number of exhibit rooms that are going to be there, more free lectures, and to just keep growing it. That's our goal, to just give people as much as we can for only $20. That's really what we're all about. Yeah, well, it's always a huge success. I know I'm always just amazed at how welcoming everyone is there. And it's one of those conventions where Adam and I will have a line all day long. And we just, it's so touching to meet so many people. (laughs) And it's just, it's so fun. So I love that you put it on. You guys do an amazing job. You should be very proud of yourself. And so if people want to find out about that, what's your website so they can follow that? It's New Jersey. You have to spell out New Jersey, powerunityexpo.com. And one of the things that makes it as good as it is, is people like you and the other guests that we invite that really do care about their fans. And it shows. It's the give and the take between the two where you could tell people like you and people like Destination Fear, they really do appreciate the people that come to see them and they give them a great experience. That's part of the overall feeling of the convention as well. I love it. I hope to make it next year. Well done. As always, I heard great things. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, well, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for bringing Sterling Hill Mine to our attention. Again, one of the coolest haunts I've been to in a long time, and I can't wait to get back. Thank you for having me. I I appreciate it. And we will see you at the Expo next year. There's something special about mines and mining culture. It's one of those industries that we sort of forget is incredibly necessary when it comes to our supply chain. But the miners feel it. Those miners in New Jersey felt it. I think that's why they took their job so seriously and why their brotherhood seems to survive 
even beyond the grave. Please go visit the Sterling Hill Mines when you get a chance. Yes, there are ghosts, but the educational aspect of it and the full experience of it can't be beat. If you do see me there, though, I'll probably wait up top in the gift shop. It's above ground, and that's also where the ice cream is. I'm Amy Bruni, and this was Haunted Road. Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Menke. Haunted Road is hosted and written by me, Amy Bruni. Additional research by Taylor Hagerdorn. The show is edited and produced by Rima Elkayali and supervising producer Josh Thane. And executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.